Vanessa, what's up? It's cold. The Arctic freezes upon us. Luckily, today we have an episode about misery. Mm-hmm. Just what you need to get the new year off right. It's an important theme for me to convey in our podcasts that being openly miserable is fun. Mm. It should not be frowned upon. And that the tendency of your Americans to smile at each other at all costs is uh, morally reprehensible. And truly, that's why I wanted to have Helen Russell, an author, journalist, and happiness researcher, uh, join us today to show and explain why. You're right. Why I'm right. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, yes, yes. She, She wrote a book, How to Be Sad, which basically makes the case that embracing sadness is not only good for you, but will enable you to be happy sings the praise of of being openly publicly and honestly sad we talk a lot about the fact that the extent to which we're allowed to express happiness or sadness is very culturally informed and americans have a particular bent towards hiding it so much so that it seems that even in in the art world americans prefer the happy and the cheerful and i refer listeners to our conversation with dara horner this from last episode. And we also kind of touch a little bit what it means on a societal level when you're encouraged to repress certain emotions and express other ones. So unfortunately, we had her only for, I think, 40 minutes. Yeah, it was a, sh- it was a short one. We had to keep it tight, which we're not known we at being not good known for. for no, no. <laughs> we like verbosity. And, uh-huh. and we like unpacking things. Unpacking uncertain things. Which is the podcast you're listening to right yeah. now, by the way. Right, yes. Uncertain Welcome things. to Uncertain Things. So having to keep it short, we we raced through topics. Yeah, it's kind of like an amuse-bouche platter of different topics of sadness. Uh, But because this topic raised a lot of questions that we didn't get to bring up to Helen, Vanessa and I ended up continuing the conversation afterwards. And we um, explored issues like criminal justice and happiness or the importance of being defiantly unhappy, something that I deeply believe in. And we've tacked on that uh, extended conversation at the end of the interview. So if you're interested in more on the topic, stick around and feel free to send us your angry thoughts and disagreements. No, your happy or sad thoughts. That binary of happy. Yeah, can't be, can't be both. Uh, just a heads up, we are probably going to have Mark Leela for our next episode, which I'm deeply excited about. And and after that, we're going to have an interesting, different conversation about neuroscience and deception through an interesting perspective. Very weird, interesting perspective, I think. So stuff to look forward to. And please follow us on uncertain.soptech.com. If you have a chance, please give us a five-star review on Apple Podcast because that helps a hell of a lot. Really, seriously, it helps us a lot. So if you have a chance, please do that. The days are short. The nights are long and cold. Please, for two provide us with the happiness <laughs> of, of a five-star apple for review. And with that, Helen Russell. Hey, Helen, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I know our time is short, but how about you give us a quick elevator buyer, at least so we know how you got into the uh, this topic of happiness. Okay, so my name is Helen Russell. I am a journalist and happiness researcher. And having spent the last 10 years researching into happiness worldwide, it became clear to me many people are phobic of feeling sad. And so I decided to turn my attention to finding out how we can get better at sadness 
and why we should bother trying. Mm. I, I also feel like when people hear the word happiness researcher, they assume that you must be constantly peppy and just <laughs> really obsessed with all things that, that bring forth joy. But you say like in your book and in your TED talk that you have a long relationship with sadness. So would you mind describing how your biography kind of has informed the way you've in, uh, started to research this field? Yeah, of course. So it's been a kind of personal and professional quest, I guess. So when I was little, my sister died um, of sudden infant death syndrome. And at that time in the 1980s, it just wasn't something that was talked about. It was still very much that idea of what you don't talk about can't hurt you. And I grew up, as many of us will have, with the idea that we should all be pursuing happiness at all costs. Just, just, you know, stop crying, dry your tears, get on with things. And so that's what I did. And a therapist later told me it was no surprise at all that I had decided to pursue happiness all of these years. But I've also, you know, as you say, I've, uh, I've experienced depression. I've had depression on off for the last 20 years. I've experienced infertility, IVF. We all have stuff. So my experiences won't be universal, but we all have have stuff. And so I really wanted to look at why there wasn't space for that in the way we speak about our lives and our emotions. And, and we can't be happy all the time. So we may as well find a way to be sad better. It's funny because I, I, this is a obsession of mine, the learning, how, not just learning how to be sad, but also learning to really, at least from my perspective, to really appreciate that capacity for sadness rather than than walling it off but what's interesting about the way you approach it in your book is how biographical it is it's almost like a journaling of the different flavors of sadness that you've discovered and 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 not all types of sadness or melancholy are created equal in your book so can, can you can you talk a little bit about how the different types of sadnesses that you encounter not just the from the personal uh, biographical perspective but of, of their types and how they manifest in society yeah absolutely and I like the idea of flavors like it's a sort of ice cream, <laughs> Sad ice cream. You know, sometimes they aren't your favorite and I'm also very clear to distinguish between depression which is of course you know a chronic mental illness that needs help and sadness on the other hand which is this temporary emotion that we all feel when we have experienced loss or disappointment or something is wrong in our lives so yeah I I was very interested in looking at things like shame, for example. So Jung called it um, the, the soul-eating emotion. And shame can be, can be so detrimental, it can be so painful. It's something that makes us see ourselves as defective or worthless. Interestingly, you know, it does have a point. It's intended to defend us against that social devaluation. So for, from my experience, um, I experienced a lot of shame around infertility because I was not able to do something that society decrees I should have been able to do, have children. And also I had to spend a lot of time uh, naked from the waist down with my legs in stirrups. <laughs> now, society tells us not to splash our genitals at strangers. I was having to do that. I was experiencing shame. It, it makes sense the way that comes into play, but it's, it's not helpful. And although we all experience shame, there's a real gender difference mm -hmm. in, in the way we experience it and the times we experience it. So for men, there's a lot of shame uh, you know, historically and, of course, this is not for everybody, but overall studies have found around even expressing emotion. And that just felt so problematic. There is no equality unless we have equality of emotion. And for women, it can often be around things like um, being in the workplace or new parenthood or, you know, all of these times that actually we, we are going to need some extra support. And then I look at grief a lot as well. And I refer to grief um, not in terms of just just death, but living losses, too. And we've all experienced those from you know, family estrangement or, or just, you know, losing a relationship. 
So I think there's lots of these different touch points throughout our lives. And back when we could go around the world uh, meeting people and hugging and talking, and those were the days, I would, I would speak to people after events who had maybe just lost their home or just lost a loved one, and they would still ask, so why aren't I happy? And I would have to explain, you know, sometimes we need to be sad. Sadness has a point. It is this really useful, actually, message that can tell us when something is wrong and what to do about it, but we do have to listen. And that's hard. We are often raised to, um, to eschew discomfort. There's this great study that showed that the, the first thing that most babies taste after milk is painkillers. You know, from a really young age, we are told to avoid discomfort, to avoid pain. And in doing that's an, so, oh, that's a horrifying factoid, isn't it? Yeah, startling. Yeah, it's very, very yeah. brave new world, isn't it? It's like start, start, start them on soma from a, from a young age. Yes, yeah, yeah, and you know, but I think it, that's a, you know that's a cultural thing as well because I mean, in Americans are, are outliers in the desire to avoid sadness, and the UK is not far behind. But you look at other cultures like Russia, for example, where sadness is is okay and it's also even celebrated it's celebrated it's useful yep. yeah yeah and so it's really interesting and you look at east asia as well there's a very different approach so what we perhaps think of as in inverted commas normal you know it's a we're a product of our culture so i think that was worth unpicking as well so can you can you go a little deeper into that because i find those cultural differences fascinating and something that i i ramble about in this podcast a lot so like, can you get a little bit deeper into that yeah, that t- yeah, the taboo is really interesting. Like, why is it so taboo in certain cultures? Yeah, so in East Asian culture, studies show there is much more of an acceptance that um, sometimes we feel happy and sad. There's more of an acceptance of the granularity of emotion. You can have, have both of them at the same time. You're not lugging around that constant sense of unease or guilt around it. There is really interesting studies between Japan and the US, both you know wealthy nations. And psychologists, psychologists in Japan have said, um, it never occurred to us to try and medicate away things like melancholy because it never occurred to us that this was a problem. So we've all seen studies showing that, you know, happier people are healthier. Well, actually, that's that's predominantly true in the US where there is this phobia of, of being sad. You only uh, being sad only makes you sick if you're terrified of being sad. If you look at in Japan, for example, um, people who feel sad have the same blood lipid profiles. They have the same you know, BMI, the same health indicators. It doesn't have an impact. And again, you know, you look at um, cultures like Bhutan. Let's just stick stick on Japan for a second because it's actually interesting because it goes to the point of of the richness of what being sad means. On one hand, from my brief familiarity with Japanese culture, it definitely contains value in in something that is, let's call it anti-happiness or whatever it is that is not just ebullient and joyous. And there's an acceptance, an expectation that... People must undergo it in life rather than try to constantly fight it off. But at the same time, there there is a, there are a lot of other rigidities that that go unaddressed in terms of filling your social role, filling your cultural expectations, filling your sexual expectations, and failing to live up to that can be devastating. And and we might not call it healthy sadness, and it's certainly a sadness that is not easily dealt with culturally in Japan and, and historically has led to a high rate of suicide. And so, so it's, it's, it shows that, you know, the, the, the taboo around your, your, your permissible emotions exists there as well. Just maybe the, the framework is different. Yeah, that's a really good point. Yeah. And when I last went to Japan for work, I had lots of people pointing out, you know, you'll have heard the term like Karoshi, 
this sort of death by overwork. I had people pointing out, well, you know, we lost a colleague here and we lost a colleague there. It, it's it's pretty normalised. Um, so, yeah, you're absolutely right. It, I'm not saying that other countries don't have their own issues. But I think um, I spoke to Jeannie Tsai from Stanford, who has done a lot of research into comparing East Asian culture with America. And um, she her theory is, is now that it's around pioneer values that the early European settlers to the US, you know, the the advantage to them was was escaping a situation that was was not great, was not comfortable and moving forward and always looking forward. And so that sort of, um, you know, active pursuit of of happiness, these sort of extroverted outgoing uh, approaches to life were were valued and rewarded, which kind of makes sense. Um, but a c- couple of threads that you brought up, both of which I, I want, hopefully we'll touch on, but one of them you were talking about the um, kind of the gendered way that we allow people to regulate their emotions. Um, and I'm, ju- I'm just thinking like my partner got a lot of flack growing up for crying. His mom actually wanted him to cry whenever he wanted. She was a very like open <laughs> person when it came to emotions. Um, but in his culture in uh, West Virginia, it wasn't okay for him to cry. So he learned very quickly, like one must not cry. And I would say me on the flip side, I think I've gone through my life not being able to access anger because I think, oh, it's not okay for me to be angry. It is okay for me to be sad. But then when you get into the workforce, it can be problematic sometimes because, you know, crying after a meeting is not really (laughs) socially acceptable. So I'm just curious, like how these gender dynamics in terms of what emotions were allowed to feel, how they have an impact, I guess, on our, on like a societal and cultural uh, level. To be fair, I'll just say that I also found out the hard way that lashing out at your colleagues after a meeting is also not quite acceptable. <laughs> right. Emotions have their place, I guess, and not at work. <laughs> yeah, I'm nodding very hard throughout all of this, which is not great for a podcast, but you're absolutely right. I think there is something about um, boys and girls from a very young age are taught to take different emotions from the bookshelf of our, our emotional spectrum. And there's been there's been research into this. Dr. Ad Vindhoeks from um, the Netherlands have has looked at how much we cry and boys and girls are you know, inclined to cry around the same amount then by the age of around 10 boys are getting to be discouraged from crying and encouraged to choose anger from the shelf instead whereas girls are not encouraged to be angry famously and are encouraged to um, well they actually found that women do tend to cry more than men but it's not really because of any of the you know deep-seated biological things it's because of our social conditioning it's because usually it's out of a sense of frustration or powerlessness because that that anger is closed down to us as an option so I think that is really problematic because of course we all feel this I didn't you know get in touch with my anger till I think late 20s on an airplane which was not that helpful but I think um yeah it's, it's problematic well, what happened? As you say, you know, <laughs> oh my goodness well, I'd had a very bad breakup. I'd been on a press trip where things had gone a little bit wrong. Um, and um, I realised I'd made a big professional mistake. And so I went into the loo on a plane back from Miami and did some um, neck pillow screaming. <laughs> it's fine. It's fine. It's fine. Um, but, you know, and I'm not saying as well that we don't have to vent. I don't go for this hydraulic theory of emotion when we are feeling that anger. is just as you say about we shouldn't be venting and shouting after a, a meeting and getting mad. We should, however, allow ourselves to experience these feelings and we choose what we do with them. So it's not punching a wall. It's um, it's thinking, OK, I'm feeling this and labelling it. And that's something that we can really help teach the ge- next generation. I'm very passionate about that, of not dismissing kids' feelings and allowing them to have mm. all of them. Yeah. I mean, in your TED Talk, you talk about the haka as a good example of how to like take emotion, channel it and 
put it out in the world in a way that can be understood and um, I guess interacted with I guess yeah and that was such a powerful thing and you know I had a teacher worked with me a little and you know as a repressed British woman <laughs> this was incredibly hard yeah. I'd never you know had legitimate you know been legitimately allowed to shout and and become all of these emotions at the same time and it was all allowed and yeah as you say in hacker there is less of a of a disconnect between um showing all of your emotions and strength they are considered the same thing which is so far from many of our experiences that it just felt a really interesting thing to explore but this is really the most difficult thing isn't it the idea is that we, you want to make sure that you experience the sadness. You want to make sure that you experience the anger, that you you go through those litany of, of feelings rather than suppress them. Mm-hmm. But like then you at said, the same they're time, useful. They're, they're useful. Right, they're useful, but at the same time, they clearly do need to be suppressed to some extent. So it is, it is always uh, some sort of self-manipulation, self-restraint, some form of quelling of the river. I, I'm not sure about that. I think I think now very much like a beach ball that if you're going to push it down, it's going to pop up somewhere. That if we can allow ourselves to sit with our sadness, it is likely to pass on more easily. And there's studies now you know, going back decades that um, trying to suppress so-called negative emotions doesn't work. It makes them come back with a vengeance. And the cost of of not facing our emotions is is far greater than the discomfort we may experience temporarily by. By, by feeling them. So I understand what you mean. You're in a meeting, you perhaps don't want to break down and cry, but to acknowledge, gosh, I'm actually really sad right now. And and then you can even park that as something, okay, after this meeting, I'm going to go and think about that. So as long as you're giving that space for it, it can't be deferred forever. It also kind of, I think, speaks to the necessity for art, I guess, in, in our world, which we, we I feel like America is very, very bad at um, embracing or giving resources to arts and culture, but there is something about having... Uh, um, transforming emotion into something creative um and and you and that's i feel like the potentially the most socially acceptable way of of transforming the emotions that you feel and putting it into something more i guess like the haka like something that people can interact with uh, talk to and have some sort of sense of connection with yeah, I get producing art certainly is so beneficial for, for mind, body and spirit. But there's also so many benefits we know now from um, you know, bearing witness to art, from, from reading, from, from going to the theatre, from um, experiencing that, you know, putting yourself into someone else's shoes, the ultimate act of empathy. And in, in Scandinavia and in, in the Australia now, there are lots of, they're called um, culture vitamin programmes where doctors will prescribe arts on prescription. And it's been shown to be incredibly cost effective, actually. You know, over a five year period, you see that people feel better, people on long term sick leave or people with depression or people just really feeling feeling out of sorts, that people do start feeling a lot better if they are uh, encouraged into culture a little more. And, you know, we, we've all experienced it. it's one of the first things to fall by the wayside when you are feeling low. It seems like a luxury, but it's it's really not. Can you go a little deeper into that because i can also see you, you know where the line of art is drawn might might be the key but sometimes you're depressed and then you're binging a netflix series i i, I don't know how emotionally nourishing that is <laughs> yeah and yeah i'm not talking succession although because i always end up feeling quite worse after that about the world but um yeah it's it's not necessarily netflix it's things uh where there is often maybe a polyphonic voice so a novel where you are putting yourself into someone else's shoes and you're thinking about someone else's point of view, it's quite a, uh, you know, it's, you're stretching your mind, um, you're creating new neural pathways. 
listening to um, music has been shown to reduce stress. It can even, there's a great study that showed that mice who have played Verdi's La Traviata during recovery from a heart transplant, we don't know why they were having a heart transplant, but they recovered four times, they, they lived, sorry, four times longer than those who were denied their fill of opera. There are, there are lots of studies to show that um, getting involved with a story can increase oxytocin, the hormone of care and connection. Um, getting scared or, or watching sad stories can um, give us uh, sort of an idea of, of adrenaline and endorphins as our body gets ready to fight that off in real, as we imagine it in real life. Um, and there's also stuff about, you know, great art and design. In Denmark, where I live now, it's been known as a design society since the 1920s when there are big social challenges, but the government at the time decided that design should be a priority, that it was important for health and happiness. And so they invested in, in art schools, in design, in, in public sculpture. And actually, it, it's been proven that, that it is really helpful. Um, studies from London have shown that it, it creates dopamine in our brain. It has the same, same brain activity as being in love. So all of these things that seem like nice to haves, um, actually, there's, there's a lot of studies out there to show that they are making a big difference. Oh, yeah. No, Vanessa knows my my obsession with especially street level art and design. This is And one of my recurring rants about how, how awful New York City is, is the fact that the every street has basically transformed into a carbon copy of any other street, including the same set of the exact same five to six chain stores, making you feel like you're not out in the real world, but walking through a mall. And my commitment is to the idea that this is not just ugly and depressing and doesn't offer you, uh, you know, consumer options. It's also actually emotionally burdensome when you walk out and you see the same picture over and over again and it feels cold and, you feel, and none of that gives you even a signal of, of human interaction and, and, you know, village life. Your interaction with the outdoors becomes more oppressive. Go anywhere else to any city or town that has some sort of street vibrancy. And I'm not even talking about street art, just seeing a diversity of businesses, of people, a street that communicates liveliness, that, that broadcasts, come here, people will engage with you. There is color, there is variety. O automatically, your, your day becomes brighter. Even when you're in a bad state or emotionally melancholy, you'll find more support in your surroundings to, to cope with yeah. that state. Yeah, the sensory, sort of the sensory deprivation of, of row after row of the same stores or, you know, these chain experiences. Yeah, it is a problem, isn't it? And I think um, I'm also quite interested in the flip side of that, where you are getting that stimulation all the time. Like often when we go on vacation, we, we perhaps snack less or we uh, check our phone less because there's just stuff going on. We are being fed in different ways. I always like the example of um, Florence syndrome. You may have come across the, the guy who, who discovered it was looking around the art and the amazing art in Florence and just kept feeling like he was going to fall to the ground. <laughs> just the sheer overwhelming emotion of it all. Um, yeah, I think I certainly have watched, I have looked at paintings that have made me kind of catch my breath. Mm. There's something really powerful about that. Yeah, and it's something also when you were talking about art with, that I didn't realize, but you, I mean, you, I think you have the, the stat in your in your book. It's that you say that it kind of stimulates a part of your brain that is the part that is about connection. And I, I guess I hadn't really considered that, the fact that the way we experience art is kind of like a a sibling or a or a child, I guess, of the way we experience social interaction. And, and it's interesting because I think everybody knows that social interaction is good for us. Like, I think most people have the general understanding that we need we need friends to be happy. But at the same time, I feel like we've gone to great lengths to avoid people. 
as much as possible. And my background is urban planning. And I think I can see it even like in our urban, rather my background, my professional background is in urban planning. And I can see it in, in the cityscape. Like we are, we are isolating ourselves more. We're not interacting in like, in America anyway, in like plazas and public spaces as much. And I also think about in America, just like the family unit has become the central unit where you're supposed to derive all happiness and fulfillment at the deprivation of having a larger network. So I'm just curious about how you think about this paradox where like at the, while we know we need people and friends, it seems like we're creating a whole culture and society that purposely prevents us from developing friendships. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And it's, you know, it's not just the US, it's all over. Yeah, the, the idea that you can you can avoid your neighbours in the way you move about your space these days. And, you know, we can do so much stuff online, which has been a help in some ways during the pandemic, but in other ways we've been less connected. I spoke to Robin Dunbar, the anthropologist from Oxford, who has Dunbar's number, the, the, the main people that we need, we need five close friends that we see every week. And during the pandemic, we haven't been able to do that for many of us. And yeah, we are losing a lot of the connections that we know will help us through things. And yeah, I looked at things like, social anxiety and even telephobia, that fear of using the phone that many uh, elder millennials or Gen Xers, um, as I am cusping, um, that we have, you know, this idea of why is somebody calling me? What is wrong with them? Why are they not sending a message? It's, um, it's a really, it's a really tricky one. But again, it's, it's, I think, getting used to that discomfort. It's, it's sitting with that awkwardness of, oh, I'm going to have an actual phone conversation. And yeah, therapists recommend exposure therapy and just trying it and going a bit longer each time. But it's hard. I think it is a lot harder to to make you have to make the conscious effort to maintain those connections these days in a way, as you say, we would never have done historically, nor were we meant to. I think it's a proof of how atrophied that sense of of small, tight knit community is in in the US that when you hear the word community used in a public context, it's usually in a commercial uh, go to this cafe, it has a great community or this luxury apartment building offers its own local community, you cringe because whatever whatever that word denotes is not what you, you really need. It's not this type of, of nourishing connections that that you're actually looking for there and there even the word friendship sometimes when I hear it used in, in, in an American context seems to be don't think that means what you think it means it makes me think of of roman history where where the word friendship was a utilitarian concept when you were talking about your amiki you were talking about your clients or your 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 political uh, clout rather than the people that that your mental well-being depends on yeah so and, and almost so it's all being commodified quite a lot i can, you know i'm from the uk where we have a similar situation but i'm in denmark right now and there is this throughout corona there's been this term samfunsin from um, samfun meaning community and sin meaning mind and it's being used more and more and there is a sense it's very hard to separate the personal from the political and I was raised in Margaret Thatcher's Britain mm. but increasingly the more time I spend in um, egalitarian Scandinavia I, I start to see the point of it all because here the idea is that everybody pays their taxes and they're looked after so you do inevitably feel a sense of community. Danes are very into privacy but there is an inherent sense of community because you are paying for your neighbor's right. kid to go to school. You know, there is more and more work needed to to get to that place in the US and the UK. It's it's a, it's actually a great point uh, the, the, about the 
the the Danish concept. And this is something I, I grew up in Israel, and and I also share that I come across. I think for a lot of our audience in, in the podcast as 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 much more on the libertarian side compared to many of the people that we speak to. But I but this is the point where I'm actually not if, if to the extent that I do believe in socialism or socialist underpinnings is exactly that. It's less about economic policy, but as a means to ensure mutual dependency or mutual responsibility. It's the closest to an actual social contract where everyone agrees we are each other's guarantors. It has an enormous power knowing that your neighbors are not going to let you fall into the abyss. You're not going to fall off the grid. The entire community guarantees a base level of security. And if I'm not mistaken, when it comes to the pyramid of needs in terms of well-being, it's exactly on that level of uh, the level of baseline security of being able to plan ahead for two and three days without worrying about existential threats where financial uh, pecuniary concerns really do matter. Beyond that, it's about community, about connections. And that's why it's doubly powerful when, when the community itself is the, the, the source of your um, economic security and strength. Because without it, you're in a total scarcity mindset and thinking about building connections is a privilege. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Yeah, I always say it's much, much easier to live the American dream in Denmark than it is in the US because you have your basic needs taken right. care of. So you can, you know, reach the top, you can be a libertarianism because you know that you have that freedom to do that. But I think, um, yeah, I mean, there's so much research now about the link between inequality and stress and inequality and addiction, even it's, mm -hmm. it's very clear to me that the idea of, um, the idea of sort of big society and politics cannot be separated from many of the things that I've been working on and talking about around happiness and sadness over the last few years. Can you go a little into that? Yeah. So, I mean, I think that there's been lots of research that, that shows that, um, for example, if you are living in a neighborhood where perhaps you have a really nice house, but down the street, people don't have so much money. Um, there is, you know, there's that anxiety. And if, if you're living in a house that isn't so great and your neighbor has you know, 12 Ferraris, um, you're going to you're going to feel resentful you're going to perhaps feel quite stressed you're going to look at what you have and have that comparison anxiety and addiction you know is often described as the the opposite of connection but it's this idea of um you want to numb that that feels uncomfortable especially in the the media climate that we are raised into we we have our, our self image taken away from us and sold back to us for the price of a product so it it's very easy to really to see why you would opt for something whatever your crutch may be whatever your addiction may be, be from food to um online shopping to alcohol to cigarettes to gambling to just have something to numb that that sense of discontent and and there, there's a real link there it's the same with um addiction there's a real strong link to that and unresolved grief because if you are pushing down that bouncy ball forever and you're trying to find ways to to not think about that that uncomfortable feeling, you're going to want to numb out. You're going to want to try and um, find other ways to not feel that pain. And I say that as someone who has tried all of the ways. So, yeah, it's um, it, when you see it in black and white, it's quite startling. Mm. I think that's that's now that I think about it, the, the addiction element, I think, is part of the reason that the the question of art has become troubled a little bit today because I don't think that succession that, that you brought up is necessarily a bad vehicle for being putting yourself in other people's yeah, shoes. You don't want to be like them. I definitely don't want to be like them, but I, I think there is a lot to learn when you're thinking about the, the, the way that power can interfere with your 
um, ability to communicate with your fellow humans. But never mind that. My point is that the big problem with entertainment is addiction. Addiction is a way to avoid actually dealing with the underlying emotions. And binging is a form of addiction, a form of numbing, no matter what you binge. But crucially, a lot of the entertainment consumption today is through social media. So the thing that you're binging is you're getting your art quotient in Instagram posts and TikTok, sometimes at the expense of going out and experiencing things more directly. So whatever the quality in uh, consuming art is to well-being, I think it's diminished probably when it's it's consumed through this addictive behavior, this compulsion to go on social media and, and get the next fix. Right. Yes. And I guess our smartphones are probably the thing that unite us all in terms of acceptable and inverted commas addiction. Yeah, yeah I think. Um, and, and that is a real problem. I spoke to, I got a bit obsessed with the Danish philosopher um, Kierkegaard, who is the ultimate gloom king. But I spoke to a Kierkegaard professor who, and I sort of asked, you know, what do you think he'd make of social media these days? He said, oh, he'd think it was absolutely terrible. This idea that traditionally we would have compared ourselves to um, say the 30 people around us and now we are comparing ourselves to the top one percent in the world and of course we don't look like them or have as much money as them or have these these skills that they have yeah it's really problematic I think um, I to, as context I used to um, live and work as a journalist in London for 12 years and I thought I was doing all of the things to tick the boxes to be you know so-called happy uh, in my in my life and I was exercising and I was eating things with green juice involved and I was doing exercise classes with things like pumping them. But I was also on my phone and my Blackberry, which dates me um, a lot of the time. And the idea that we can ever kind of truly get our stuff together and get even without addressing the, the social media and the technology side is, is a bit of a, of a pipe dream, really. So, yeah, I think if we try to block out a spectrum of our emotions or dissociate from them uh, by going to social media, that's not going to help us either. And I, I wonder if there is even a, a path in which social, like we live with social media without it causing this numbness, but, or, or is it just inherent to the product? Is that some, a device that is just inherently puts you in a dissociative state? I, I guess it, well, I guess there's very smart people who are designing it yeah. to, to do just that. Make us addicted. Yeah. yeah. So I think we have to really limit our, our connection with it. I, I'm now a big believer of, of going on airplane mode as much as mm. possible and, you know, just trying to make sure that I have all those set timers. And you've been on Instagram for 30 minutes today and then it's time to stop. I'll actually take this opportunity to debut my solution to social media, um, if you don't mind. Oh, yeah, share. Just because it's something that we've been debating a lot on the podcast, talking to experts from journalism to history and technology. And I've often expressed my discomfort with regulatory solutions to this problem. However, recently I logged out of Facebook on my phone. And when I came back, okay. I, I was asked for my password. And then I had to stop and ask myself, do I actually need to go in? Am I really interested in what's behind that wall? And the answer was no. And no, it has remained for a couple of months now. The funny thing is that I still find myself going into facebook on muscle memory but every time this prompt asking for the password stops me from actually going in and then i'm oh uh, i i didn't actually intend to go to facebook so um fuck that so our friend uh ken who i've told about this uh, said well this is this should be the new regulation it's a very minor and unintrusive rule 
but you should just never have auto login. If you don't have auto login, you actually need to choose to go into the product, whether they then go in on sheer addiction. And that might be the simplest way to reduce the use of of these platforms as an immediate sedative. You're right, and absolutely muscle memory, the extension of your arm in some cases. But isn't that mad that we have to have it stack mm -hmm. to stop us doing something mm -hmm. that our you know, grandparents would have not have computed? Right, but that's, that's the nature of the and beauty of the addiction, world. yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting, <laughs> right? Because it's like something about it, it, I guess it kind of feigns connection. There's something about, feigns connection in, I guess, a low stakes way. And right. I, that's part of what like, we get addicted to it's like oh i'm messaging with people oh, i'm interacting with people but then at the same time there's like this profound like dissatisfaction after like 25 minutes of just like i've done nothing there was no real connection and at the same time it's it's taking the place of what would have been right walking somewhere having a conversation having an uncomfortable moment you know like and which at, at the end of the 25 minutes would feel much more satisfying probably at the end. It goes to the perversion of those words, friend and community. Like you, you have the community on, on, on Twitter, you have your friends on Facebook. Those, those aren't what those words mean. But I mean, but, but I was curious though, um, Helen, in your research, I mean, cause I've been very curious about like co-housing models and like I've done a little bit of research into them. Um, and they, they seem very appealing to me, especially for people who are parents, because there, there seems to be like, it seems to be a model where you in you live in community whatever whatever that means you live in community with people and there is a kind of um orientation towards childcare and support in a way that seems at least from the outside not having lived in a co-housing complex that seems to be like a very healthy way of living and i'm curious if you've if you've done any research into that and and how that has if it's true if it is if it seems to be like a better way for humans to to live i think i think absolutely yeah it is yeah i think um that there's no way we were supposed to be raising our children in nuclear families the way we are now yeah. and actually um denmark has has a big tradition of of this communal housing in this way and my neighbors my lovely neighbors left to join mm. a communal housing center and they have three kids and and yeah they only have to cook dinner once a week and there's there are people there all the time and of course there'll be people you don't get on with but there's often people in your own family you don't get right. on with so yeah it, it seems a, a nice way to be and i think you know looking at the family unit and how we raise our children it used to be that if you don't if you don't love yourself then how can you uh, love someone else but actually now psychologists are starting to see that if you have not been loved if you have not had that model to you that's when you're going to face problems growing up so the more different examples of, of ways to live the more um, the more love that you're getting as a child the more you're being allowed to have these emotions and sort of really experience things in a in a low stakes environment like a safe big extended family the better you're going to do the more resilient you're going to be as you move forward uh, the 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 theme of uh, raising a child and your journey with that runs through your book how much did your relationship with your own sadness or sadness in general affect your thinking on about having a child or did you did you worry that it will come into play oh that's a great question i think i am very conscious of um you know we i'm going to make new mistakes i'm hopefully not going to make the same mistakes and everyone who helped raise me did what the best that they could with the tools available to them and the background that they had come through, you know, the silent generation, the people who didn't talk about things, who'd been raised by people who'd been in a war. But I'm very conscious of, um, for example, when I am now fortunate enough, I, I have children. And so if a child falls over, 
I don't say don't cry or, you know, it's okay. Or if someone says, oh, I'm scared of the dark, I don't say there's nothing to be afraid of because then that's denying that emotion and, and children grow up feeling ashamed, like, or well, maybe I was wrong, grow up distrusting their emotions. So now from, from my research and speaking to the, the best psychologists and, and the best minds in the business on this, um, the memo I have got and that I try to put into play is, is trying to sort of validate that and help label those feelings, but also help them to work out what's appropriate, helping with emotional regulation, something many of us didn't get as children, so have to teach ourselves as adults, which is far harder, but trying to sort of say to them, well, you know, you just um, lost your troll. Uh, maybe that's like a, a six. Maybe that's not an 11 right now, but I can see you're very upset. You're very frustrated. Um, let, let's sit with that. And you can't also reason with a child when they're really sad. You have to treat the emotion before you try and do any sort of logic in there. So that's something I try to do now. We just had Halloween, which is the anniversary of my sister's death. And so it's always a weird one for me. I was never celebrating it growing up. And now I kind of say to my kids, you know, I, you know, I love that you love dressing up. It's a bit of a sad day for, for grandma because she, she lost her daughter that day. But you, you can have that duality. You can have you can have a happy day where you dress up as Elsa zombie and you can also remember your aunt who you never met. Mm. And it's it's complicated. But if we are teaching kids with minds like sponges, mm. then they're going to be OK. They're going to handle it. I, I am curious, though. Um, I mean, you mentioned that you you went through IVF, which was it sounded like pretty tricky and, and difficult time for you. And we've been having a lot of conversations about the decision to have kids and because I think we are of an age and I guess I am of an age where one has to start making these decisions and there's a like there's like like you said there's a lot of societal pressures particularly on women to to go forward on that path I also think there there's for a lot of people there's a feeling that like if I have a kid I'm going to be happy because I'm going to be fulfilled and I'm going to have meaning (laughs) and so I'm just curious if you would take us back to when you were when you were deciding that you wanted to have kids like how are you weighing like why why to have children and ha- if that would impact your your own ability to be happy you know i would i would say that for, for me personally it, it was more of a an overwhelming compulsion that took part of every took over every atom of my body from the age of about 20 25 so but for me, though, it was just I was almost possessed with this idea that I just wanted children wow. so much. And that was it was very difficult for me to to contemplate that that might never happen. And there was a very good chance it might never happen. But I think there is certainly something about the idea of expecting children to bring you happiness. And that, of course, is problematic. We can't instrumentalize another human being in that way. And there's actually also some great research from uh, Dr. Tal Ben-Shahar, who was at Harvard, who came up with the concept of a rival fallacy. And that was often around... Um, goals that we pursue and when we get them we feel a sense of anti-climax and I spoke to lots of you know athletes and mountaineers and business people who'd achieved great things and then felt kind of flat Mm. like a guy who'd been to the south pole and said oh it looks a bit shoddy actually (laughs) but you know actually I spoke to uh, Tal Benjahar and asked you know is it am I going mad or could you actually apply a rival fallacy to a long-term relationship Mm. or, or becoming a parent and he said yeah absolutely and especially now because of the um, you know, the media circus around parenting because of the way it's portrayed in Hollywood movies, because of the marketing around parenting, our expectations are sky high mm. and so unrealistic. And and of course, even I wanted children more than anything I'd ever wanted in my life. But still, there were days when I was woozy with the smell of excrement, hadn't slept for 48 hours, hallucinating colours. It's it's hard. It's still hard. And I, I, you know, I believe very passionately that even though you have wanted something, you still get to 
you still get to moan about it some days, right. you still get to have tough days. And yes, it's not going to solve any of your problems. Right. I mean, we, we had an interesting conversation with Paul Bloom a few months ago around this idea of suffering being kind of one of the how would you describe it? Like, I guess useful and the the thing that most is most likely to create meaning in your no, life. No, I think even even when beyond that, I think suffering is a source for happiness or at least mm. a source of well being. Mm-hmm. And 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 he used the example of having kids. It's like you're never going to suffer more <laughs> than you're raising children. And and yet at the end of the day, you're going to probably feel very very fulfilled that you went through. That. I'm, I'm actually glad that you brought the the arrival policy a chapter i thought was was one of my my favorite chapters in the book but also the uh, uh it, it brings up the question of when we're talking about the difficulty of dealing with sadness and 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 being open about this sometimes it's not just about being open with the emotion because sometimes it's the difficulty of admitting what is the source of the emotion sometimes it's about the discomfort of putting to words what exactly is it that you're going through contending with thoughts like maybe i'm going through an anticlimax or an emotional breakdown because of having a child that's a difficult thought to actually continence and it requires a lot of emotional bandwidth to be able to actually think about it and deal with it i wonder how much this difficulty as a matter of social efficiency comes into play in what you were saying about the um the pilgrims um, because when you have a society that is strapped for resources and is in, in deep scarcity, high mortality rates, dangers all around, and with needs to expand and explore, you can't really afford, you know, the energy and, and complexity tax of having difficult dialogues with people. You need to be you need to make sure that you get along, make sure that you have enough shared language that you can communicate and coordinate without eating each other's heads off. So developing social norms based on constricting open interactions has a sort of efficiency to it, but comes at the cost of developing taboos. So how much do you think that's related to our difficulty with embracing and facing sadness directly? These social efficiencies that um, require us to not deal with certain questions? I think that's really interesting. I think there's certainly something about... um yeah, taboos and having the difficult conversation with yourself. And that's uncomfortable as heck, but you have to do it. But, you know, putting your historian's hat on, uh, forget the pioneers for a moment. If you look at the Victorians, the death rate, you know, the infant mortality was extraordinary around that time. But Victorians, what they did have were lots of rituals to help cope with death. Mm-hmm. And, and that helps. So you know, studies found that rituals of any kind, right. doesn't really matter if, even if they're conflicting, they help you through the process of grief, they help you to feel better. So... I don't think that the proliferation of death necessarily means that you have to dismiss it and move on. But of course, that's what we saw in, for example, the Second World War, or London's cholera outbreaks. But the Victorians specifically, I'm thinking, they still had a lot of death, but they still found ways to um, mark that loss, to be sad about it. They had the words to speak about it. They had the morning, um, the morning dress and, and ways to work through it. I spoke to lots of of people in, in the course of research for the book who had lost somebody and, and many of them ended up making that reference to, to wishing there was still some sort of, these days, visible sign of grief, like a black armband mm, or right. um, you know, a pin of some kind that you could wear just to say, I am grieving mm. right now, just... You're, you're communicating it, yes, yes. Yeah. And that's, that's interesting. Uh, although I, I, I do want to emphasize that I think the issue with the pioneers is less about dealing with grief itself, is being able to coordinate beyond grief you need to make sure that you are preserving social 
cohesion or stability because the society itself is so tenuous. Victorians had a very established society. So for them, the trouble was how do I communicate my individual emotions properly within this established society? When your society is not established, you need to basically walk on eggshells because every small piece that falls apart and everything collapses, everything implodes. Yeah, that's a good point. I, I, yeah, I don't know if I have a, a direct sort of reference for that. I think the only thing I would say is that in in working with now um, families who have lost a child and looking at our nuclear family today, there is something about even whatever your situation, if you have care and responsibilities in any direction, even if you, you have a pet, you have to get up each day, you have to feed feed something that you're caring about, you have to go out of the house. So there is always something right. that that forces you to, to get going. If you have something else, and that's another mm-hmm. major, the point that I found of, of, that was really helpful for getting to be sad well was having something else to care about mm-hmm. beyond yourself. Mm-hmm. And that's really helpful. I, I'm curious because, I mean, I mean, we could, on an individual level, there's like this, like you were talking about the, the bouncy ball. There is this uh, theory, right, that if you don't process or deal with issues, including sadness, at some point it will catch up with you later, right? Like that's the, that's the idea. And I can, I can see that on an individual level though. I guess we could debate it, but I'm curious if on a societal level, if you've, Hmm. if you've, if you've seen a culture or a society at some time period where that catching up thing happened and, and where and when that might be and what does that look like? Societal pathologies. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I may well get um, cast out of, the United Kingdom forever more, but I think there's something around that. If you look at, say, you know, Brexit, mm. where I'm from in the UK, this idea that for years uh, the the Boomer generation were were you know prioritizing the ego. There was this real emphasis, as in the US, on um, on feelings, but they were meant to be the good feelings, really. And it, you you were meant to sort of just just keep calm and carry on, and just mm. keep going and try and cry and be cheerful. And but but those those sort of I guess societal tensions were still there. And then you see in something like Brexit or the, the rise of Trump in the US or the rise of nationalism around the world, these, these feelings are there. And if we are not able to have these difficult conversations about class, about money, about race, about immigration, all of these, these conversations that need to be had, if there are um, a strata of society who are just smiling and saying, everything's fine, nothing to see here, then, then we're in trouble because we can't have open and honest dialogue and try and make things better for everyone there's a part i really like in your book where you talk about the cognitive dissonance that people experience in american society especially where they find themselves misaligned uh with society's expectations or their projected roles in society whether because they can't or won't live up to to what they expect of themselves and think society expects of them and the worst part is, as you point out, that these very people often lack the vocabulary to talk about this gap, this discrepancy, because they have grown up their entire lives um, absorbing these expectations. And the result is often a form of alienation and resentment. Emotions that, in lieu of the vocabulary to deal with this pain directly, can often lead people to search ways to vent and even destroy the society that, that they feel hurts them. And I don't think it's a stretch to say that a lot of the political movements that are driven by populist anger and rage of the, the, the past several years are, at least in part, the result of an inability to navigate this uh, cognitive dissonance. 
Yeah. I think I think as well it's worth pointing out that there are some it's not just that not talking about sad things is bad for you, but that actually talking about sad things and allowing for temporary sadness, there are some really positive things as well. There's been some great research from the University of New South Wales showing that allowing for temporary sadness can help improve our, atten- improve our attention to detail. It increases perseverance. It makes us more generous, more grateful for what we've got. A little like the old stoic idea of imagine losing everything and you'll be grateful for what you have. But it also helps us to be more clear-eyed, which I find fascinating, that we are less susceptible to fall for the halo effect where we think mm-hmm. we usually beautiful and rich can do no wrong and less likely to fall prey to the fundamental attribution error where we uh, you know, become defensive and think people are out to get us. Mm-hmm. And in these kind of polarised media times, that feels hugely useful. Right. If we were maybe able to be a little bit more clear-eyed, I feel that would clear up, I mean, a good 50% of the, the tabloid news. It's a point that I, I will explore at a different time, but I think it also this is a measure of mine to often sift journalists that I that I appreciate more than others. And I think the, the journalists that I like to often tend to have this streak of melancholy and i don't mean necessarily i'm sure all of them have some melancholies in their personal lives but a melancholy in their writing which shows that they they write from a place of of genuine it's not cynicism it's just an underpinning existential sadness and this actually matters like you pointed out because when people have the the rose tinted glasses tend to turn cynical very quickly which actually, in a way, blinds them to complexity. Whereas people who are motivated by this underlying melancholy often see things a little more astutely, or at least more honestly, which gives them a better vantage point to describing and writing about the fallenness of our world, which ironically makes them less cynical and maybe even more hopeful. Yeah, I think that's it, isn't it? It's that balance between not avoiding um, the sadness and not avoiding the difficult conversations whilst also maintaining hope. And we have to have hope to make things better. Otherwise, you know, what's the point? So, and I think that's another place where, for example, things like warm glow giving or this idea that fundamentally, if we saw a child drowning in a pond, we would save them. Human beings are good fundamentally. So trying to kind of nourish that part and kind of kindle that flame feels feels really important. Thank you, Helen, for joining us at such an early hour. Oh, thank you. It's really lovely to talk to you. A really interesting conversation. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, likewise. Thank you so thank much. Thank you for listening to Uncertain Things. Follow us on uncertain.substack.com or wherever you get your podcasts. We are Uncertain Pod on the social media. If you have a minute, please give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts because this helps a ton. Share us with your friends and enemies. And until next time, stay sane. There has been a great movement around the world to incorporate parameters of well-being into into the indices that that judge a country's success. For instance, you know, you, we, people have been there's the whole the famous happiness index, but the, the in other ways as well, the idea that maybe maybe the success of a country should not be pr- primarily um, measured by things like GDP, but more about the general happiness of the population. I find it interesting because it always reeked to me of brave new worldism. Because what what is happiness? Who's happiness? How do you measure it precisely? Obviously, there's a great debate about it, but but it's certainly an interesting interesting piece of cultural shift. I think around the world that is slowly occurring. Um, but I wanted to raise two issues that I didn't get to to talk to Helen, so I'm going to ask you instead. Mm-hmm. Just to, I wonder what you think about this. So one thing is, and this is 
more about the happiness side than sadness. Um, it's a question of if we're starting to really take happiness as a, as a metric for social thriving, mm. should we also be applying that to things like justice? Do you think that there is room for using happiness as a measurement for how to apply justice? Because when you think about what it is that justice serves in a society, it's a correction for a wrong that was done. Mm -hmm. Usually we measure this wrong by I lost a certain amount of money or I, I lost certain abilities because harm was um, inflicted upon me. And now I want to, to either retrieve some of that, some of what I lost or to punish the person so that I get some emotional satisfaction, you know, see our conversation with Tamler Summers on, on the reasons that why we punish people. But what if we use happiness as a metric for that? And that's a study that I remember reading, I think almost 10 years ago, and you start measuring your loss um, in terms of happiness loss, the a crime has had a happiness cost on you. You've lost a certain amount of happiness. And similarly, when you punish people, maybe there should be some proportionality to the happiness that you take from them. So things like prisons. Prisons, whether or not you're in prisons for two years and 10 years, could have almost identical happiness cost in some ways because by being in prison, you tend to lose your ties to the community. You tend to lose the things that, that um, keep you mentally healthy. Mm -hmm. And that's why recidivism is so common because those fundamental structures of social cohesion that are necessary for happiness, as Helen brings up, are destroyed the moment you go to prison, mm -hmm. regardless of the time you serve. So maybe prison in itself is not a proportional punishment to the harm. If you know, when you give punishment to people who committed murder, as well as to people who have stolen a purse? Oof. I mean, it's, it's a big question. I, there's something about the word happiness that feels too, too imprecise and subjective mm. to be the metric that I would want people to lean on when thinking about justice. Cause I do think we have to reconceptualize the way we measure justice and outcomes. And I'm not sure that happiness is the right thing to peg it on. So for example, if I'm, I'm thinking about what would I want in an ideal world, a justice system to allow for, I would want people to have more access to opportunity to like bouncing back, I guess, resiliency. I don't really like that word, but that's the word that that I think encapsulates that concept best. Um, and, and I think, and I, and I think actually economic, um, the capacity to, 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 for social mobility via economic means are the things that I actually think I would put more emphasis. You mean in, in terms of, um, rehabilitation? Yeah, I guess I'm thinking of, I'm thinking, I'm, I guess I'm thinking beyond prisons as well. I'm thinking of like economic development and we're thinking about, uh, so preventative neighbor neighborhoods and communities that have are that are more likely to be uh, members of communities that where they're more likely to be sent to prison. Um, I'm thinking of it kind of beyond just prison, right? There's like larger issues at play. 
And I'm, I'm not sure if happiness is the right metric to say, like, are we being successful in these communities? That might be one aspect of it, but I would probably make it like a tertiary one. And I think the first and second would probably be like, to what extent do folks in this community have the ability to generate wealth in their community, to move up the social ladder, to invest in their neighborhoods, to to have the agency to create the institutions that they would need to support their neighborhoods. And I would, I would almost imagine that if those things are sorted out, happiness will come along the way. Uh, but I, I don't know if I'm, I would, if you put happiness first, maybe that would work, but it, it just doesn't, I'm not sure if you're going to get the outcomes you're, you're seeking to achieve. I mean, that opens up the whole point about we know that wealth building in itself is not sufficient for creating healthy communities. And going back to the unrest that the U.S. is experiencing broadly, there has been some decline or regression from from the height of social mobility across the U.S. But the U.S. is still in a pretty great place economically, largely speaking, or, or on average. The problem is... That the, the the way that we experience that wealth is is askew. Mm-hmm. It is not generating the same sense of of fulfillment as maybe it used to. So the problem here is not only economic. There is an economic problem, and that that is uh, there, inequality really is affecting people in a terrible way. And and <laughs> you don't need me to rile about American healthcare and, right. and uh, the other corrupt systems that is that is keeping this inequality. Um, from closing but but that's not all there that's going on Mm -hmm. no I would agree with that but I also think there's like kind of like a hierarchy of needs I don't think we I don't think people can be happy if they're if everything if resources are scarce and you're thinking about survival first right like I feel like you've got to get survival off the table first for sure and then and not just survival for like the day-to-day but also like will the generations that come after you be better off than you were. Right. I think I bring up in the conversation with Helen, the minimum is to be able to look ahead and to feel right. like you have, a, you have a tomorrow and you don't need to worry from hour to hour. Mm-hmm. Scarcity mindset brings everything down and happiness is just right. irrelevant in that category. Right. But, but, I, but I assume that we're talking past that. We're talking about, you know, the, the concept of justice to a world. I, mean, I don't know. The, the, the vast majority of people that are in jail come from, cultures and communities where they're not past that and if you're talking about justice i don't don't know if you can it's a fair point tackle that without the other yeah yeah it's just a thought experiment really i i it's not like we even have a clear enough as i started by saying we don't have a clear enough metric to even measure what we mean by happiness but i just Mm -hmm. i like that thought experiment of what what if we start plugging in happiness Mm. as as at least one metric that we use to evaluate yeah. whether or not we're doing justice right. And you did bring up the the happiness index, which is what Bhutan uses. And we actually, I think we actually cut her off as she was about to get into Bhutan because we wanted to talk about so many different other things. Uh, but that is a that is an example that I don't know that much about. That I'm sure we have some listeners who could tell us um, that I don't know what that has meant on the real like day to day life when your government is prioritizing happiness. What does that mean from a real like 
policy perspective, what gets funded, what doesn't. And I, and I, and I'm happy to look at that data. And if someone says like, look, when you use this as a metric, actually all other outcomes, including economics, economic outcomes are improved, then I, I'm open to being convinced there. Right. Bhutan is a small East Asian country that has just adopted that as, as a, alongside the GDP as their, their, their metric for growth. And, and, and I, like I said, at the very beginning, I don't think I don't think that GDP is the end all be all framework. I actually think it's it's incentivized us in uh, negative ways more than necessarily positive ways. And and so and I and like I said, I, I think new frameworks are needed, not just for things like economic growth and justice. But I'm just I'm not I'm not yet sold that happiness is is the lens mm. through which we should judge how well society is doing. Yeah. Yeah, and and, and I'll, I'll say it again. There is something always uh, brave new worldy mm. about it. And also, and to Helen's point, like if, if happiness is the metric, then what happens to sadness? Right, right. And and that just brings me to the other point. I think I'm going to tack it at, at the end. Is like if if you feel like this was a short episode, okay, we have a sure. bonus conversation, um, ruminations. Um, and brings me to my next point, which is back to sadness. This is not on a social level. This is, again, I guess it's semi-social. Something that was really important for me to ask Helen, and so I obviously forgot, <laughs> was we, she, she, she emphasizes the importance of being sad, which is, which is great. Interestingly, though, she comes at it from the perspective of, and she's, she's uh, British, right, originally? <laughs> she lives in um, Denmark, but she is originally from... Um, England. Yeah, her, she wrote a best-selling book called uh, "The Year of Living Danishly." Her her perspective on sadness is from a place of I had to discover how not to repress my despondencies. As somebody who's always been defiantly sad in public, whenever somebody would ask me from I think elementary school, "Hey, how are you?" I would say horrible because I I hated that question. From my perspective, I always had the other challenge of sure. People want to be there for you, but to what extent and what are the limits? There is a point in every society, even societies that are more open to people being honest about their feelings, mm -hmm. where your miserableness becomes a burden. Yeah. And how do you navigate that? No matter how much we, we preach it, nobody's going to tolerate you being sad <laughs> all the time. I mean, I guess I would ask you two <laughs> follow-up questions then. To what extent has being defiantly sad helped or harmed you in your personal or professional life? And then part two of my question is, do you feel the opposite taboo? Do you feel a taboo around showing too much happiness? Is that like anti your identity? Huh. But I, I wouldn't call it taboo if it's on a personal level. I find it just unseemly to be <laughs> happy. Uh... That could be some sort of... You think it's only, it's purely, I mean, you're Mr. Everything is culture. It can't be purely individual, right? I mean, no, yeah, <laughs> but no, but, but it was in defiance to Israeli culture as well, because Israeli culture was also have like, hey, let's go party. Um, I don't find being happy unseemly, really. I, I find, I find feigned happiness unseemly. Mm. You know, we, we talked about this sometimes with people hugging each other. I, I like hugs, but I don't like people feeling obligated to hug each other. I want to hug a person when I feel like hugging them. And similarly with expressing um, joy or, or, or excitement and, and all those emotions that are, are wonderful. But I want to hear about them only when they're real. 
First thing in the morning, somebody asks you, how are you? And you say, oh, I'm doing great. You're not doing great. It's seven in the morning. Nobody's doing great. It's a lie. Stop it. And obviously it gets worse with that. But when you when you're talking to people who are clearly experiencing some degree of, of anxiety or not even necessarily depression, but just complicated emotions that are the result of their personal life, professional life, instead of expressing them, they know that they need to project uh, an air of confidence and, and put togetherness. And I just find that really, really ugly. Mm-hmm. It's aesthetically unpleasing to me. Um, so it's, a, it's against that that I, I am defiant. My, so I just pick that my default is, 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 is misery and I li- li- live in that comfort misery. So I don't think it's a taboo so much as, as an aesthetic preference. Um, professionally, surely this, is, this has not been um, looked upon fondly, but I think... But you're also working in America. So. Right. No, but I, the places where I end up working are usually places that, that kind of accept that. With friends, though, I think it actually is valuable because in a way it was used as a sifting mechanic. If you find my bluntness on this uncomely, then well, fair enough. We, we were probably not meant to be friends. You survived it despite your American upbringing. So what does that tell us? You have a big heart. No, no, I don't. I don't think it's that. I think it. I don't know why it didn't off put me. Uh, I. It might. It might be some because I am. I am inclined to repression, like Helen, uh, <laughs> with my you know pseudo British upbringing. So there might be like a bit of like admiration or jealousy around being around people who can be so openly grumpy (laughs) you know (laughs) like that's some i and i i think when i was growing up i was uh inclined not to show sadness i was very much like only be happy i think as i got older i started accepting i feeling and accepting sadness more but i still haven't accessed anger that feels like an emotion that i don't Hmm. i still don't feel like i'm allowed to oh interesting to feel let alone like to feel even privately let alone publicly Mm. So I feel like there's a lot of layers to go with um, that's interesting emotional experience. Why do you think that anger is more um, taboo for you? I, I mean, I, th- I mean, we talked about this with Helen, but I think it's a gender thing. I think there's something about it's okay right, for right, girls the- to cry, but to get mad. mad. I also think maybe just like people in my life who I saw, I saw their expressions uh, or outbursts of anger as like dangerous and scary and so i think that to me was like well i'm not going to be dangerous and scary and i and i shouldn't be dangerous and scary because i think there's like a gender dynamic there as well dangerous and scary as in oh my god this person is is violent and and out of control or is crazy no not crazy not crazy just like out, out of control of their um person essentially there's something about there's something if i see a person crying i don't think oh that person can't control themselves i think they're going through a hard time and it like might open up feelings of compassion empathy do i want to help the person i want i can empathize with the person if i see someone angry i just think i gotta get away from this person. <laughs> this person could cause harm <laughs> like there it doesn't it does not instigate any feelings of empathy or compassion in me it's like it's mm. like fight or flight mode a little bit yeah, it's like the degree when you encounter somebody who is a real rabid alcoholic that can really turn you off on alcohol which i don't think is fair like from a logical perspective it's not fair to say that someone isn't like just because someone's crying that they're still themselves versus someone is angry. They're not themselves. Like it, it doesn't make logical sense, but that's. Especially if you don't buy into free will. 
because you know that we are the product of our brain dragging us. I think it's Jonathan Hyatt who had this uh, metaphor of uh, our rationality is um, a, a human riding an elephant. A human riding an elephant? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. The human may think that he's steering the, the elephant right. this way or that, but it's actually the elephant who's the emotional baggage yeah, that's in I actually just read a paragraph that I, that I highlighted. One second, I'm going to get it. I just read on the subway yesterday. I'm reading... Um, the Body Keeps the Score by <laughs> Bessel van der Kolk. Mm-hmm. That's not how you pronounce that. Um, anyway, but this paragraph kind of struck me. So he says, For now I want to emphasize that emotion is not opposed to reason. Our emotions assign value to experiences and thus are the foundation of reason. Our self-experience is the product of the balance between our rational and our emotional brains. When these two systems are in balance, we, quote, feel like ourselves. However, when our survival is at stake, these systems can function relatively independently. I just like that because I think I do, I do often think of uh, emotionality and rationality as dueling, dueling functions. There's like, I think of them very like binarily. There's like a war, like an inner war between my, my logic and my feelings. And I don't know, I just like this paragraph because he was like, no, actually, we don't. The f- emotions are the foundation of reason. If when they are in balance, is when we feel like ourselves. And I just I don't know that kind of struck me. I liked I liked thinking of them less as in potential conflict all the time. I mean, if you take the the heights metaphor, because I think from my perspective, the the whole rationality thing is a bit of a smokescreen. Mm. But right. to, to take the metaphor, I think it's still. It is true that we still have a perception of our rational choice making or of our volition. As if it existed completely separate from As what we're feeling. As if it existed feeling. independently. And therefore, whether or not it's, it's, you know, it really has the power to steer us one way or another, we need to feel that it is aligned with our emotions. And I think because he's writing on the idea of trauma or yeah. cognitive dissonance. And, and part, part of it is when you, you have that conflict, mm-hmm. when your perception of your rationality aligns with the way you experience your emotional state, that is the, I guess, sort of flow. Mm-hmm. It creates a lot of anxiety when you have this conflict that you feel that like you need to reconcile between the two. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And I feel like that's actually something that another thing that I have got gained from our friendship. I feel like you've always understood that <laughs> it doesn't matter how much your brain is ready to accept something and move on. Like if you're not, if you're emotionally not ready, it's like, you're emotionally not ready. Stop beating yourself up about it. Just let it happen. And that's also like an approach to life that I didn't have. And I think I've, I've taken from, from you and knowing you that has been helpful <laughs> for me when my, when my brain tells me, stop thinking and feeling this way. You're, <laughs> you're fine and ready to move on. <laughs> you know? I, I I, I think it's also the the, 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 the accepting that it's just fine to not be okay yeah. to move on. Yeah. To and while also sometimes you can you can move on while not moving on. Like mm. you, 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 that's another thing. That's just I guess the reality of living in the in a world where you sometimes need to you know get out and make money and, mm. <laughs> and do things. So you yeah. technically have to tech in theory move on, but you're not there. That that's where I would love for the Helen Russell revolution to actually take place that we find a way to allow effective social interaction where people still come to work and still act socially without pretending that they are in a fully there i I, i'm a little skeptical that we'd ever achieve that but i could see a world in which 
art were more part of everyday Hmm. life and you would be able to access and experience and recognize those emotions in you that you're not allowed to necessarily trot out every day in the workplace. Um, But if, if there were art that you experienced on your walk home and in the park and maybe even in the office, who knows? um, I wonder if that would be a way of kind of putting people a little bit more into balance because uh, it just seems so, so marginalized in our society. Art is just like left to these little corners and it doesn't, it does not feel like something that we can access on a daily basis in a way that would be cathartic and helpful. Um, I, I, yeah. I, I don't know. Uh, Helen brings that point up about having art more accessible. I, I, I worry that there is, that could mean too many things. Does that mean any, you know, I have, I have a lot of problem with, with Germany's, um, their over generous funding of art that leads to a lot of just random shit Mm. getting money. And I'm conflicted about this. I don't think I'm getting any profound catharsis from it. But on the other hand, there is something that just enlivens the city that you can walk around and there's performance everywhere. And calling back to our conversation with, with Ken, Ken Goshen, like I would place most of the blame on that in the art world itself, actually. Like <laughs> I would actually charge, I don't know if there's like, de- there's a, I think there's departments of loneliness in cities now. So maybe I would charge future departments of happiness to be bold, <laughs> to be brave and bring cheesy fucking art like art that isn't gonna be in a gallery and isn't gonna like make millions of dollars but art that is that people like (laughs) art that like gets people to feel something in the middle of the day it has to be more than just something that they like something that actually um engages them in some enjoyable way you know unlike marvel which just leaves you dead inside something that you know, you see around the city and makes Those you pianos on the side of the road yeah. that people can play. Pick your shit. interest as you, the, 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 that activate your brain as you walk and you don't, that doesn't let you completely zombie out. Yeah. Anything that, that is driving you out of the, the monotony yeah. of your routine, I think is, is definitely healthy. I also think there's something where we place, place too much of a premium on, observing art instead of creating it like there should be i feel i almost feel like you can zombify out on art and not actually engage with the emotions of it i feel like there has to be like a second step like for sure like marvel or even like really good television like you can binge a really good television series that has great themes and ideas and emotions doesn't necessarily mean you're going to incorporate that into your own kind of emotional vocabulary i feel like there kind of has to be more instigations of like what is your what is a creative impulse that would result from your experience of that art you know what i mean there has to be like a second step that i feel like most people don't know how to access in themselves i mean myself included like where do you where do you go from that because it gets you numb at some point not to mention that the overabundance of cultural products mean that you don't need to spend time with with one thing for too long you don't you don't need to have it stay with you because you can just move to the next thing Mm, mm mm-hmm that's a whole other point and we'll yeah. leave it to another conversation, but the value of boredom mm-hmm. yep. been, has been discussed before mm-hmm. the power to stop stimulating yourself with yeah. content and letting yourself just be alone in your boredom. Think back about the thing that you saw two weeks ago and see if you can appreciate new aspects of it because you've got nothing else to do. Mm. Has someone written a book on the death of boredom? I'm I sure. would totally read that. Yeah. 
if you'd find that person and interview them. I don't know. I almost wonder if it's like the invention of time and clocks. I wonder if that was the beginning yeah. of the end of the death. Of yeah, that's a, the beginning of the end of boredom. That's funny when you start thinking about things in, in passing increments. Mm -hmm. But by the idea of ephemerality and mortality have always been there. Yes. No, but I think I think I, I definitely remember reading like tracts from like the industrial age or industrial revolution age and there was a huge backlash against like oh my god I get, it's like there's busyness all the time mm. they, they there was i do feel like there was like a psychic shift where one went from leisurely pondering and being bored more i mean of Suddenly you a certain see the class, clock chasing you and yeah yeah there's something there where and i think it's it seems like it's only gotten worse over time and not um i feel like yeah i, I just can't I don't know when the last time people have so actively avoid being bored. It's like, it's like they, they can't stand to be alone with themselves for even a second, you know? Yeah. That's, that's a, I never thought about it in the context of clock. I thought about clocks in the way that it obviously systematized the world. And an obsession of mine is how the invention of clocks, I think it's in the late 17th, early 18th century, um, completely, turn around the the available metaphors for the specifically european folk suddenly everything's a clock that's how we start getting people like descartes thinking of the buddy as a machine because clockwork is is readily available uh, god wound up a clock right. and then let it go right it's it's deism and uh determinism right men as automatons i always did love thinking about the way that the material world circumscribes and redefines our social metaphors but I never thought of it in the context of boredom and the way that it sets our lives into increments of time. And suddenly you're able to count the ways in which your life is passing and, and just slipping through your fingers. Just need to make sure not to slip into um, over nostalgizing of, of the past, the way that some scholars, as we will discuss with Mark Lula nowadays, idealize the medieval period or Roman period, er eras when... Dying from dysentery was, you know, Wednesdays. I, I also think it does connect to what we we're talking about earlier about emotions. It's like there's no time to deal with emotions, right? Yes. It's like we are we are automatons. We are <laughs> we are cre we are productive creatures. We have limited time. We must maximize productivity in every moment. And and emotions are not that they get often get in the way of our productivity right. and. I don't know. One thing we didn't talk about very much was um, I, I feel like there is a like a societal push now around like mental health mm. and everyone seems to be talking about it. Everyone seems to be acknowledging that like we we need to to think about and improve our mental health. But there seems to be some, I don't know, there's some sort of weird dissonance happening for me mm -hmm. where I feel like more people are, are trying to make it less of a taboo. But at the same time, it's all in the framework of because we got to fix, fix ourselves because oh, we got to oh, be better it. right there's like a acknowledge mental health but we got to get better to you know what i'm saying there, and i'm not sure if i've put my finger yet on what it is that's bugging me about the mental health uh theme <laughs> coming up more and more my instinct is first that it comes in the usually comes in the context of this question of productivity mental health is the path for you to Make sure that your problems don't interfere with your work. We need to bring you back to, well, emotional normalcy, basically. Right. It's about how to be happy. 
It's about how to be exactly. It's about how to be happy, not how to be sad. Right. Um, Which even I bet even with like Helen's book, I don't even know to what extent she uses the phrase like you need to be learn to be sad to be happy. But if even if she's not the way they mark you market it, that's how you that's what you right, do exactly. in America. Like that's how you get people to accept sadness. It's because I'm on a journey to happiness. The subtitle of her book is uh, all I learned about getting happier by being sad better. There you go. Like there is no acceptance to, I guess we're bringing it back full circle now to, to just being defiantly sad for the sake of it (laughs) or, or accepting that as part of who you are potentially. That actually would have been a a nice thing to, to To ask ask her her. about. Yeah. Because because I think the, then the question becomes, is it is it can it be healthy or healthier to just be sad <laughs> like I, I, or, or maybe it's sad not for healthy. its own sake, sad for its own sake. But then and then I wonder, is it maybe it's not even healthy? Maybe it's just like a little bit of an echo of the Mark Lila conversation that we're going to have where it's, can being sad still result in a good life. Right. Like what how are you measuring what a life is worth? And does happiness need to be a metric on one's, the value of one's life or how good it was or whatever, you know? It's funny, we've moved from the question of should happiness be the metric for everything, including justice and <laughs> social growth, to should happiness be even considered at all in anything? <laughs> uh, right. Well, I, uh, that is that is the fullest circle you can go. Yeah. So um, Very uncertain. Yep. Well, if you stayed with us for this long, bless Cheers your heart. To you. And uh, we'll see you next time.